This show is sponsored by The Pragmatic Studio. The Pragmatic Studio has been teaching iOS development since November of 2008. They have a four-day hands-on course where you learn all the tools, APIs, and techniques to build iOS apps with confidence and understand how all the pieces fit together. They have two courses coming up. The first one's in July from the 22nd to the 25th in Reston, Virginia, and you can get early registration up through June 21st. You can also sign up for their August course, and that's August 26th through the 29th in Denver, Colorado, and you can get early registration through July 26th. If you want a private course for teams of five developers or more, you can also sign up on their website at pragmaticstudio.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the iFruit Show. This week on our panel, we have Ben Sherman. Hello from Houston. Uh, we also have Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about connecting to backend APIs and just backend systems in general. I'm, I'm curious, how much of this kind of thing have you guys done in the past? That's pretty much a, a central part of any app that we develop. I mean, most apps um, aren't really self-contained bits of functionality. They, A lot of them require data that's accessible somewhere else, or even if you generate the data on the device, usually people want to access that data elsewhere as well. So uh, sometimes you can consider things like iCloud, but that's you know more of a an Apple-centric solution. Um, if you're building an app for the web or for multiple platforms, then maybe you would consider building your own API and synchronizing with that. So when you talk about building your own API, I mean, I know that there are these syncing services out there that, you know, you, you send data to it and it does something with it. Do you know under what circumstances that would be a good idea versus building your own API that does specific things with the data on the back end? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on where, you know, how much focus you have, like how much time do you have to build something and where your skill set lies. For folks who aren't server-side developers, uh, building an API is actually uh, a tall order, and there are plenty of solutions out there that will do that for you um, at the cost of some sometimes flexibility, sometimes data portability, and you're sort of at the whim of, you know, the, the, the interface that they provide for you. Uh, but there's systems like uh, Windows Azure Mobile Services, uh, which allow you to just focus on your part, the you know the mobile client portion of it. Um, but they have support for saving data and sending push notifications and that sort of thing. Um, there's also Parse, and there's you know just a bunch of others out there that um, can synchronize data. And some of them are focused purely on synchronizing core data models. Uh, so there's iCloud Core Data, which is uh, receives some sort of a lot of negative press, um, and I don't think anybody's really seriously considering using it until Apple addresses some of those things. And then there's there's things like uh, Wasabi Sync and TI Core Data Sync, I think it's called. Um, those are also more open uh, solutions where you'd have access to the data, you know, outside of your application if you wanted to write your own web web app, for instance. It really depends on if, if the, the set of data is sort of constrained to your device, if it's like a, your task list or like a shopping list or maybe your own recipes or something like that, where you're creating the data and that data should be yours on any device that you carry versus uh, a, an app that just consumes some resource of data. So for Delhi Radio, we have a vast amount of bands and, and music and show information and things like that. And so really the the mobile clients can't synchronize all that data. It's it's really based on your usage. So you search for a location, you're going to get data relevant to that location. It doesn't really make sense to to store that in a database. <laughs> <laughs> I love that sound. <laughs> yeah, that makes uh, sense. So so I don't know you know what to call those, but there's there's apps that sort of make sense to have a database with all the data, and then you want to synchronize that. Um, and then there's other apps that are just sort of consumers of data available on the internet. So, like, for instance, a, a friend of mine uh, built an app. It is called Buoy Explorer, and it's for getting weather conditions from uh, buoys, like, on the coastline. So uh, his specific use is for surfing. He wants to know, am I going to drive an hour to go to the beach if the conditions are not great for surfing? Uh, but fishermen and, and windsurfers and other types of, um, you know, outdoor types might be really interested in that data. Uh, and so uh, he's able to download the data that you're interested in directly on the device. So it just, you know, there's just lots of different um, mm -hmm. 
I guess, aspects of the type of data you're you're dealing with, whether or not it's yours, it's created on the device, perhaps, or if you're just consuming some data available on the internet. Right. So with the Wasabi Sync and the uh, TI Core Data Sync, are, are those just uh, systems that you can just push core data? I don't know what to call them. Models, records, to or is yeah, there more I'm probably to it not that? the yeah. I'm probably not the best person to talk at length about these. I know um, there was a NS Brief episode on Wasabi Sync, which is where I heard about it. And the idea is it's sort of a drop-in uh, synchronization technique so that you would just still interact with core data and under the hood it would, and I don't know, for lack of a better word, serialize all your transactions into HTTP calls, which then would make it to their server and synchronize across other devices and um, probably even Macs as well not just mobile devices. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've kind of dreamed up a solution that I have no idea if it would work where, yeah, basically you just say, this is a change that was made and you give it enough information and then it goes into some document database like CouchDB or uh, MongoDB and then something else can play it back out the other side. Yeah, um, you still you still have to be careful. I mean, synchronization is, is a really complex topic. Yeah. And what would happen is, if you you made five or six changes on your on your phone and then put your phone in a drawer for a week and then made sort of similar but different changes on your iPad uh, and that's synchronizing all the time even though you made those after the the ones on the phone and so what do you do in that scenario I mean there's just lots of things to consider when your devices don't have connectivity all the time uh, so synchronization is certainly probably a side topic to just connecting to apis but um, it's something that you should consider if you just want your data available on another device. That's it's definitely something uh, to look into. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, third-party APIs because that's that's kind of a backend that you didn't build or control. Um, I see a lot of apps that hook into things like uh, Facebook. Uh, fewer that hook into Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, ha- have you guys built stuff against the third-party APIs? Yeah, um, a lot of those are APIs that. Either our clients have built for us or we build for the client, but there's still APIs in their own right, right? The mobile client is not necessarily a trusted uh, consumer, and so you have to provide all the security that you would provide in any other scenario. Uh, so you do things like you could implement OAuth, for instance, for user authentication. Uh, doing that usually entails opening up a web view to some, uh, to some URL on the provider's website. So I recently did this for Instagram. So you go to a specific URL and the user logs in in mobile Safari and then there's a callback URL that um, that you configure when you set up your application in Instagram's developer portal. And that callback URL on iOS devices can have a custom scheme associated with it. So you just put something other than HTTP in there, something that uniquely identifies your app. And you can um, you can configure your application to respond to that scheme. So that's how it knows to open your application back up uh, with the callback rather than just redirecting to a web page. And uh, as part of that redirection in the URL, you'll uh, receive an authorization token or an access token that you can then save and use that to make authenticated requests against the API. And so typically you would just store that in the keychain. And if you were logged in, uh, you would have access to that or you would have an access token. If uh, if you're not logged in, then you would go through that OAuth flow. Yeah, that makes sense. Rod, have you built against third-party APIs for stuff? Yeah, I've I've built against uh, 37 Signals Backpack API and the Evernote API, and uh, also a client API that that we built together. Yeah, I find that uh, a poor API really limits what you can do on mobile. Sometimes, you know, when our clients provide APIs, they're not really considering what the use case might be on mobile. They're just providing a general purpose API. And uh, that oftentimes either limits us or makes our job a little bit more difficult. For instance, if you wanted to know, let's say you you had like some sort of drill down thing where you search and you get a bunch of records and you want to know under each each record how many articles are underneath. Uh, So you might want to show a little badge number with the count if the data wasn't returned to you ahead of time, either with the account um, sort of denormalized and stored in that response, or with the child attributes or child items right there in the response, 
then you wouldn't know that without making multiple calls to the API to get back that data. So a lot of times you have to really consider what is the use of each screen and what data does it want so that you can optimize the API to fulfill that request without causing you to make unnecessary queries. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. What's your experience with the 37 signal APIs, Rod? Generally, they're pretty good. Sometimes it's pretty frustrating because you're not in control of the API and and they'll change things out from under you and then you have to work around it suddenly and... uh, or they're not designed for sync, so you, you've got to come up with your own mechanisms to keep track of what's changed and, and deal with that. And uh, Lots of issues like that that you have to deal with that can be quite frustrating. So what are some of the better APIs that you guys have worked with, third-party APIs? Um, I really like the Stripe API. Um, I've most used that on, on Rails, but, I mean, APIs stand on their own. You can use them in a mobile app as well. And I, I just really like the Stripe API. I use it for collecting payments on NS Screencast. And um, it's tightly integrated with the NS Screencast web app. Um, so if you had a, um, uh, say, a, an iOS app that you were selling a physical good, you could uh, use Stripe to take payments uh, rather than doing in-app purchases. Uh, it has to be a physical good or service, of course, but you could do that. Huh. Um, I think, you know, like a sign of a good... Uh, API is just really, really well done documentation. It doesn't necessarily guarantee a good API, but it's certainly a sign of the better ones that I've tried, uh, that it makes it easy for you to sort of visualize how do I connect to it, how do I make requests, what do the responses look like, that sort of thing. Yeah, good air handling. Yep. RESTful API, JSON returns. So typically are the the APIs you guys working with uh, JSON APIs? Have you done much with XML or SOAP or some of the other... <laughs> Yeah, one of the er- one of the earlier uh, apps I work on worked on was uh, they had an XML API that would return all the data up front for the entire app, and <laughs> sometimes sometimes that's beneficial, right? Um, and like if you are if you're willing to pay the price to say, okay, I'm going to download this thing once right now, and then from that point on, I can just use the app, uh, and that might be useful if the data doesn't change very often. But in this particular case, the XML format, not only was it just a lot of data, it was like two or three megs of JSON, I mean of XML, but just the, the tag soup, it was just, the way that it was formatted was really strange and it sort of uh, exposed some wonky normalization they had in their database and they were not really shielding their API from that complexity. And so from my perspective, it was way more complicated than it needed to be. And... Uh, this was years ago uh, before I was, I don't know if there were any really nice um, XML parsing libraries aside from NSXML parser, but uh, trying to parse a nasty looking XML document with NSXML parser is kind of uh, a, a task I never want to really do again. Because <laughs> it's, it's a, a stream parser, so you get basically events that you're like, hey, I'm at this tag, now I'm at this attribute, now I'm at that attribute's oh, value. wow. And you kind of have to build your own model of what's going on, of the context, so that you can extract the data you care about. Uh, now, the benefit of that is speed and memory, right? You don't uh, construct an entire model representation of this XML document in memory, which in this case would have been really bad uh, for three or four megabytes, of, which would amount to just a gigantic NS dictionary. So there are pros and cons to using that type of XML parsing uh, technique, but man, it sure wasn't fun. Yeah. Yeah, Backpack's API or uh, API returns XML, and uh, on the Mac, and you can use X- NSXML document. And on iOS, there there's a C level API that's kind of like that. And I ended up using, uh, I think it's on Cocoa with Love. They had a some. There's an article about how to simplify that so that you didn't have to use NSXML parser, and, and you could do it more like NSXML document. And then you would use um, What's that called? XML, uh, PaaS, what do they call that? To, to extract? Yeah, XPath, that's right. Yeah. To yeah, extract not only the data. That, there's, there's other uh, parsers out there that you can take advantage of now. I mean, it, this was years ago before there was really a third-party library community uh-huh. in, in iOS. And so I think the... I don't, I'm trying to remember when NSXML parser came out. I can actually look it up. But, I mean, libxml has been around forever. And that's really what this is um, what this is on. So let's see, NSXML parser, 
looks like uh, that came out in 10.3, so it's just pretty old. And then on iOS, it came out when... Two, so it was available from the get-go. So uh, that must be just a thin wrapper over libxml. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it was. Here's I'll post the link. Nice. So what about JSON? Or, or well, let, let me back up a minute. So you. So we of, didn't talk about soap. <laughs> yeah, and you you kind of um, implied uh, that there were better ways of doing XML than necessarily using maybe NSXML parser. Are there other libraries that you use, or are those I, I the think, ones you go with? Yeah. So in a NSXML parser is fine, and it actually offers really fast performance, but it's just more complicated than a document based parser. And now that I think about it, I don't think I have had to parse an XML document in a really long time, which is kind of nice and refreshing. But Yeah, the trend is definitely towards JSON, or if, if it's not already there. Yep. So what, what do you is guys the name of the, Is there a class, uh, Rod, for parsing XML? Can you use NSXML parser uh, outside of like the event-driven style? I don't think so. You can use NSXML document, but parser is just stream-oriented or event-oriented. Okay. So NSXML document, does that... Is that on uh, iOS as well? Um, I don't think it is yet. I think that's just a Mac thing. But this this article did it is a wrapper around uh, LibXML, mm-hmm. and basically it downloads the whole document, and then you use these two two uh, function calls to extract out what you want with the XML path. Yeah, and and that worked pretty well. Yeah, I worked on an app that used sort of a uh, it was like a faux API. It was for soccer stats. And they had just an enormous amount of uh, stats, and we couldn't just download all the information because it changed regularly, or rather, they were kept, they kept adding to it, and it was just too much data. But you could drill down into detail screens, and the way they did that, for whatever reason, was uh, static XML files sitting on an Apache server somewhere. Uh, so we just used um, heavily used caching, and would go download the file at a given path, and that path would be you know, this team, this player, this season, uh, right. and it would download that. And uh, once the season closed, that data is static, so you can cache it forever. So what we'd end up doing is is just using the HTTP caching uh, semantics, like uh, if modified since and etag, to keep a local cache of all the content. Uh, if you use NSURL cache for that, then you can specify how big you want your disk, your disk cache to be, and it will expire things. Once it get, reaches that uh, ceiling, it will expire things that are older. Uh, so that worked out really well for the for the common things like a, a season stats or a game's uh, particular stats. We could just go fetch the file once, parse it, and uh, keep that data cached. And then we would just make another HTTP request for it uh, every time we needed it. But um, nine times out of ten, that data would still be in the cache. So um, the only real problem that we'd have to overcome is parsing it uh, repeatedly. Uh, which turned out to not be that big of a deal in this particular app because uh, the files were relatively small. So should we talk about JSON for a minute? Yeah. I mean, I, I think pretty much these days you're you're going to find that every API, pretty much every API uh, has a JSON variant uh, just because it's a lot easier to mentally consume. It's a lot less data over the wire. Uh, plus you have NSJSON uh, serialization, which gives you really fast serialization of objects to dictionaries and arrays of attributes. So it's just natively supported and really easy to work with. What about um, libraries that map your the JSON to your Cocoa objects? I have, I've always wanted to use one of those, but I haven't ever gotten around to it. So I wrote one. It's not great at all. <laughs> so I, ne- I didn't ever open source it because it was really specific to what we were doing. And the way it worked is you would have a, uh, a base class, which I called, what did I call it? Uh, smart JSON object or something like that. And what it would do is it would loop over the keys that it sees in an object. So if you had, uh, let's say, um, uh, a list of cars, and the car had like make, model, year, and color maybe. So it would look on the class for an attribute that represented each one of those those things. But we'd have to take care to sort of match the naming guidelines of JSON versus Objective-C. Uh, so since ID is a reserved word, I don't want to use that as a property name. So I would end up uh, looking for something called car ID, and I would do it like car with a capital I, um, you know, Pascal cased. And then if, uh, if we had something like, um, I'm trying to think of, like engine type, let's say that was a, a property on the JSON dictionary, it would probably be all lowercase engine underscore type. 
And then the equivalent Objective-C property name would be engine capital T type with no underscore. Uh, and so I would just make those assumptions and try to uh, search for a field name or a property name with that same name and use that to set it, and it would do type coercion and all that stuff. But then you run into some problems about, like, what do you do with dates uh, that come down as strings, right? You have to uh, probably create an, an estate formatter and assume a specific date format uh, so that you can properly parse that. Uh, so there's some challenges to overcome. Uh, another thing that I didn't solve is, well, I guess let me back up a little bit. That automatic detection of or mapping of uh, at JSON attributes to properties on my Objective-C model obviously didn't account for 100% matches. And so I had to provide a dictionary of keys to value overrides to use. Uh, so if, I, if, if something in the API was named something really wonky that didn't make any sense in my object, um, I could change the name and provide a dictionary mapping between the two. Um, and then you have the the added challenge of what if you wanted to have, like, uh, if sticking with a car model, what if the JSON API returned everything as one big flat object, but you wanted to create a richer object model with like an engine class, then you might uh, you might need to provide some sort of mapping between for multiple classes to map to the same document, and then vice versa if if it was uh, split apart and had multiple children, but you wanted to flatten it out and simplify it on the Objective C side. Uh, you you might have to solve that as well. Um, and every solution I've seen to do this uh, is really handy, but also really complicated. Uh, and cases like that become, I don't know, difficult to understand. The best example I can think of is RESTkit. Uh, RESTkit has a pretty good mapping library. Sometimes I've used the approach where I just add an init with dictionary on my model object and then let it consume that dictionary and translate it. You almost need like a, a protocol like NSCoder, but... JSON coder or something that you can implement on your your object. Well, so, but then in your in, in it with dictionary, you're just you're just setting keys and values yourself, or how does that right. work? Right, right, yeah. You just look at the dictionary. Yeah. And I mean, set your... I usually just start out that way until I have something a little bit more complicated. Um, we ended up having just a, an enormous API that we needed to consume uh, for Delhi Radio, and you know every single screen has a different set of data, and so uh, we ended up coming up with some conventions which would alleviate us from writing all that parsing code ourselves. Mm-hmm. Nice. I, I'm a little curious because um, a lot of the APIs that people consume are for some of these larger companies. I mean, you mentioned Instagram, Facebook, things like that. Are, are there specific libraries that are built around those APIs that are out there? Usually you'll find, for the popular ones, I think you'll find a, a client wrapper around it. Well, on iOS now, there's the social framework for talking with uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook, kind of a higher level up. So I guess my question then becomes, are most of these frameworks or client libraries really good or are they, are some of them not so good or? You know, I have a friend who, who uh, is really uh, opinionated about this and he really thinks that if your, if your API needs a client wrapper, then it's not a good API. Um, <laughs> however, there's still some HTTP plumbing that you might not want to have to deal with. Um, and having a an interface in Objective-C where you get code completion and, and things like that um, make it a little bit easier to get started and understand what's going on. So yeah. um, I, I still think that um, having a thin wrapper is good to get started, but also like should not hinder you from consuming new things in the API. For instance, if a new feature comes out and there's just not a method for that in your wrapper, then does that mean that everybody who uses your wrapper can't use it? Or do they still use your wrapper to execute requests against the API? And I think the social frameworks on iOS do a good job of, of not locking you down to specific features on a given API, but they just rather give you a way to authenticate a user and sign requests uh, outgoing to... So basically... When you're going to, um, uh, say, fetch a user's Twitter followers, uh, you can use the social framework to get uh, access to a Twitter account. It will prompt them for permission. And then once you have permission, uh, you can um, issue a request to any endpoint on Twitter.com. And it will use the OAuth access token and uh, authenticate that request for you. So you don't really have to deal with the authentication and OAuth uh, plumbing, but you do have to construct the URL yourself and all the parameters yourself. And so I think that's a, a nice example of 
you know, abstracting away the comment or the complicated things that are just going to be mundane for people doing this over and over again. But still, if Twitter comes out with a new endpoint that exposes some new functionality, you can take advantage of it from day one. Yeah, that makes sense. And to be honest, um, I've used some libraries that abstract away certain aspects of uh, some of these APIs in Ruby. And in some ways, they're nice. In other ways, they tend to get in your way. But yeah, then I just I, I go down a level to the the REST client library that I'm using and, uh, you know, just make the call myself. And, uh, you know, in, in those cases, it stored the, the auth token that I've got so I can just do what I need to do. And I've consumed a lot of APIs across different things from, from Ruby and Rails. I, I just, I'm, I'm a little curious about what some of the nuances and differences are between, you know, a web stack and a, an app stack like iOS. Yeah, I think the multi-threaded nature of, um, or the need to be multi-threaded on a user interface, like a smart user interface type device like iOS, uh, is much more apparent uh, yeah. than it is in, say, a web request in Ruby. Whereas if you need to talk to an API within a web request, the user's already waiting in their browser, and so you can, cur- you can block a thread and make that call, and it will just appear slow to the user, but it won't feel broken. But in an iOS app, if you make a request on the main thread, it could potentially cause your app to crash because uh, your user interface thread is not responding to events. Uh, but the user is certainly going to notice it and it's going to be a bad experience. So from the get-go, you just need to make everything asynchronous. Uh, so there's lots of handy class methods on uh, NS data and a string that allow you to issue a network request and get the contents of some network resource and put it straight into an NS data uh, or an NS string. So if you wanted to get some content, you could do that. And I see that a lot with beginners. They just see this one-liner methods like, oh, I can download Google.com's HTML into a string just by saying and a string string with contents of URL, not knowing that that's going to make a blocking call and talk to the network. And on a slow network connection, that could be a really long time. And even if it's not, a, even if it's 100 milliseconds, somebody's going to notice because your content is not going to be scrollable. Uh, things aren't going to animate. Uh, things like that. So, even though there are those convenience methods, uh, I tend to not ever use them uh, because everything else is better done asynchronous. So uh, I lean heavily on AF networking just because I like the interface it provides. Uh, it provides a an easy way to just uh, assume that requests you're going to make are, are JSON requests. So you can say, uh, create a JSON request operation with a given URL, optionally parameters, and then uh, the callback that you're given already has a parsed JSON document for you because you told it you were going to make a JSON request. It's got the same thing for XML. So uh, when I mentioned not having to do any XML parsing, uh, that's the reason why is that I've been using AF networking for a while that I just say, oh, I'm just going to go get XML from this endpoint and it just gives me back a document I can work with. They have other things like uh, plist operations. So if you wanted to fetch a plist or if you wanted to fetch an image. So I like these higher level request uh, concepts that you know, it gives you the same asynchronous behavior. It gives you a success and an error callback. But in the success callback, the thing you get back is the thing you requested. You don't have to do any any additional parsing. Yeah, I should use AF networking more. Usually I end up using NSURL connection or just doing a dispatch async and calling some other blocking method that does something. Yeah. Yeah, the problem with that is you can't ever cancel that. And the er- like, right. what do you do about errors? I mean, there's just... It's it's like such an attractive one-liner method, but then there's so many edge cases that you have to consider. Yeah. And, and canceling is actually really important. Um, we do this a lot. Like if we're tapping in through screens, and each screen needs some sort of information, so we make a little request to go get that data. Uh, and we're okay with doing that because for the common ones, the, that data gets cached, and so those those appear instantaneous. But then the user might hit like say they're browsing for a band or whatever, they hit a band and they actually hit the wrong one. They hit the back button. We want to be able to completely cancel that request and not waste any more system time on it so that we can focus on the one, what the user actually wants, which is the next request they're making. So anytime the user hits the back button, we cancel any requests that were happening as a result on that view controller. Yeah. And it's your all connection. You can, you can cancel it, but uh, it's right. nice to have AF networking take care of all that. Complication for you. Yeah, NS serial connection didn't really get useful until when was it like 4.0 or something? Uh, I think uh, one of the reasons why there was a proliferation of networking libraries is because it was so 
primitive. Like uh, if you wanted to download data and report progress on the download, you literally had to shovel bytes around into an NS mutable data yourself mm-hmm. to calculate how much has uh, come down and how much is left. And I like having that low-level capability, but nine times out of ten, I just want to make a request and get the callback I need, yeah. saying it's done or it failed. Uh, so I, I, I definitely like the higher-level uh, concepts. And now that NSURL Connection has block-based behavior that you can say, okay, execute this request and give me the response, it still has a bit of unfortunate side effects that NSURL Connection doesn't necessarily assume that it's an HTTP request. So when you get back an NSURL response, in order to get the response code or the response body, you have to cast the response to an NSHTTP URL response. Right. And I don't know. I, I've never used it outside of HTTP, so uh, that to me is is um, complexity that I'd rather not deal with every time I make a request. Right. So one more question. Have you guys built backends for iOS applications? I've um, collaborated on them and, and helped work with the guy doing the backend. That's about it. Yep. I mean, right now I'm, uh, I'm doing primarily Rails actually right now for, as the backend for Delhi Radio. Uh, mm-hmm. once we got the, um, the iOS app where it needed to be, uh, then the web app needed work. And as, as new features come out, we implement that API. So I would say more than half of the iOS apps we work on, we also have a hand in building the API for. And yeah. part of that is just a risk thing. When we're engaging with a client, sometimes they'll give us an API or they'll say uh, when we're trying to scope out a project, they'll be like, oh, there will be an API for this. And I've, <laughs> I've learned, I've learned uh, the hard way that sometimes when they say there will be an API for that, uh, they really mean they're going to drag a, uh, uh, like I forget how this works in Visual Studio, but where they like file new web service and they name it web service one.asmx and they, they drag like a data connection from a design surface onto there and you're literally getting data straight out of the database that you know have you worked with sure, some of the clients i've worked with <laughs> <laughs> yeah when when the service is called web service one.asmx you know you're in for a hard time uh, and then of course you know like ios doesn't know what a data set is so anyway the net people in the audience will will uh, laugh at that anyway uh so yeah there's there's Sort of the whole gamut. I've I've worked with APIs that uh, were heavily SOAP based, and some of them. And I'm not sure if WCF still acts this way. I th- think it does, but WCF being like the .NET web service layer, uh, th- there was a time when uh, I had to alphabetize the input parameters in the XML document for the input. So otherwise, it would reject it uh, as like not matching the the contract and uh, stuff like that. Is just kind of really frustrating um you know some sort of rest like api just sort of a little bit more flexible you pass in params either in the post body or in the uh in the query string and it gives you back data just so much easier to work with yeah i i have to say i haven't directly built apis aimed at ios but i've built my fair share of json apis that have been used by ios and uh you know sometimes it, it takes a little bit of tweaking so that it it you know lines up better with what the iOS developer is doing, but for the most part, if you've got a well-designed API, um, they can consume it without too many problems. And so, as long as it's well named and secure and all that stuff that we've kind of alluded to, it works out well. And uh, yeah, it, it it is an interesting problem to solve. But uh, yeah, so I mean, fun. a lot of these API sort of changes we've made have been heavily influenced just by usage of the iOS app, which. Which mean like general purpose APIs can can work for a long time, but if you really need like fast performance, a lot of times you need something really tailored to what you're doing. So we have uh, specific data requirements for screens that you know that mean the API has to behave a certain way, and you might not you might not design it from that way from the get go. And just you know if you need data for five or ten items in a list that you don't currently have, you need an easy way of getting that data, either with one call that includes it all for you or with minimal calls so you don't have to do one per row. And it's kind of a similar uh, problem with select n plus one issues in database-backed applications. You know, like you want to make sure and get all the data in as few queries as possible. It's the same thing with, with services. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, I usually don't try and 
make pitches on the show, but if you do need a backend built, I am qualified to do that for you. <laughs> so give me a call. Um, do you want to talk about security? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I've never written an app for a bank or anything like that, but there's still the notion that like we should secure the API against unauthorized tampering and or just spying. You know, people want to protect their intellectual property and they don't want unauthorized API clients and that sort of thing. Uh, so one technique I've seen used is uh, to sign requests. Uh, well, first of all, you should probably be using a SSL. I was going to say. <laughs> use uh, SSL. If you use SSL, I recently did a screencast on SSL pinning in which I take a, an app that was built that uses SSL and I uh, open up Charles and set up myself as a proxy for that domain and self-sign a certificate. And uh, the self-signed certificate, you you have to trust the, I think there's a setting in most networking libraries of whether or not you want to allow requests from untrusted uh, certificate authorities. But if you if you trust it, I mean, it might be the user's device. They may be the one trying to uh, compromise your API. So you can't trust the user's device either. Uh, so anyway, they, they may trust an intermediate certificate. And therefore, you could spy on the content going to and from the API. But not only can you spy on it, with Charles, you can actually set a breakpoint on the response or the request, and you can modify it. So if it was something like, yes, you're logged in, and here are your credentials, and are you an admin, true or false? If that was just a response coming back from the API, then you could set a breakpoint in Charles and change that is admin flag from false to true. And all of a sudden, you have more capability in the app than you should have. So... That's obviously pretty scary. SSL pinning is a technique where you embed your certificate and it will extract out the public key of that certificate and compare it against the public key uh, for the service you're talking to. And if, uh, if they don't match, then it will reject the request. So that's a, a handy technique and it's, it's pretty low uh, complexity as well. Uh, dropping in your certificate and enabling a property in, a, in AF networking uh, will allow you to do that. And since you're using public key and not the actual certificate, uh, it will work even though your certificate gets renewed, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once you've done that, you can have pretty good uh, assurance that you're talking to your server and the response hasn't been tampered with. You might also want to prevent other people from making requests as you. So one of those things is with the, you you might have like a uh, like an API key so that some random person on the internet can't just stumble across your endpoint and start making requests. Uh, but if you're able to uh, sniff out requests coming out of the device, then you could easily get a hold of an API key. So one thing you might consider is request signing. And what that is, it can be implemented any number of ways, but one way I've, I've um, seen it implemented is where you take the URL, the method, the HTTP method like get, put, patch, or whatever, then all of the parameters to that method alphabetized. And the reason you alphabetize them is because the server has to do the same operation. It has to be deterministic. So you alphabetize all the params, and then you take that and you um, HMAC SHA-1 encode that with a private uh, secret that you don't share with anybody else. Right. That so private the server secret knows- is just a sequence of characters sure. that, that is unique. And, and the reason that that's important is because then if I make the same request as you but we have different accounts, that secret will make that signing different. And so it can verify Correct. So the you identity might see, of the... You might see all of the requests or all the parameters for a request, but if you change any one of those, that will generate a different signature. And the signature is also a parameter of the request. So the, the server receives the request, does the exact same operation you just did, and compares the signature you generated with the one that it generated, and if they don't match it, it rejects it. And so that, that would allow you to intercept that request and make it again. Like somebody else could take the same request and make it, but if they tweak any of the parameters, it would fail. And you could also add a, add an additional time component to this to say, okay, this, uh, this is the date time of the request. So, uh, then the server could change a setting of, okay, yes, all that was valid, but the time was yesterday. So I'm going to reject it. Yeah, I've seen that pretty frequently where if the date time isn't within a certain, you know, open band that it'll accept, then yeah, it won't accept yep. it. Now, you, you still have to worry about, you know, the API key is somewhere on the iPhone app. So if if the uh, if you're storing it on disk, then you still have the problem of somebody could sort of 
crack open the iPhone and take a look and see what's inside and see if they can find that in, in a string somewhere. Uh, but all these things are steps you can take towards making it a lot more difficult for somebody to uh, reverse engineer your API or make unauthenticated requests or whatever. So, like I said, I, you know, I haven't done this for a bank or anything like that, but, uh, but I think it's good enough security that's easy, easy to implement to go like 80% of the way there. Yeah, I've done some PCI compliance stuff and I've done some, uh, some HIPAA compliance stuff and, and I have to say they're not a lot of fun, but they're interesting problems to solve sometimes. Um, yeah. the, the real rub is, yeah, you know, how far do you have to go in order to make it secure? And for the most part, you know, you've covered, you know, the major points with, with SSL, which is if you're familiar with, um, public private key author authentication, um, that's effectively what SSL is. And then, um, yeah, just, you know, encrypting your keys. You can also encrypt your messages. And I've seen people do that where the payload is, um, you know, the post data is just encrypted data. So they encrypt it and then send it. And then, you know, the response is encrypted and sent back. So it really just depends on, on where you're at. I think for the most part, a lot of these approaches are overkill. If you have SSL, you have an API key. If you're really concerned, you do the signing. I think, I think you're pretty safe. Yeah. So, um, I think that's probably good enough for security. And then I think another thing to stress is just support caching from the get go. Uh, on the, on the iOS side, if you're using NS URL connection or NS or AF, AF networking, you can just enable NSURL cache and everything should just be cached from that point onward. And I say it should just be cached. It really gives all of the power to the server to control what the caching parameters are. So NSURL cache allows you to uh, set up a memory capacity and a disk capacity. So you might say, okay, I'm, I'm cool with 10 or 20 megs uh, memory, which is a lot actually. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm okay with, say, 5 megs memory and 20 or 50 megs on disk. And uh, when you make a request, you can set cache policies uh, of whether or not to honor requests from the server or cache parameters from the server. But really allowing the server to say, okay, this expires on this time or this expires uh, uh, or rather the, the server can just say, here's the date of when it was modified. And then this, the NSURL cache will save the date and the e-tag if, if it's provided one. And then make conditional requests for that that resource. Uh, and then the server has a chance to respond with 304 not modified if that resource is still fresh. In my experience, a lot of the server APIs, they're not doing that, though. They don't give you that information. Is that well, shame your on experience? Them. <laughs> shame <laughs> on them. I think that's like step number one. Make sure you do this because doing it after you've shipped is, uh, yeah. well, it's impossible. And if you start saying, oh, well, I'm going to cache this thing for 30 seconds. Like that might put a gigantic strain off your server because if you have, you know, a hundred thousand clients out there and they're all trying to refresh the same page and the data doesn't really change that often, then maybe a little bit of caching makes sense. But it's kind of a slippery slope and you have to validate these assumptions, right? It's like caching for a little bit makes sense, but what about data that you expect to be there as soon as you make a change? Like, uh, you get a push notification that you got a friend request and you swipe to unlock your screen and then you look at the friend requests screen and it's cached. If it's cached for 30 seconds, it's going to feel like it's broken. Like you just told me I had a friend request and now I don't see it in the list. So uh, things like that that are immediate, like you post a tweet, you immediately want to see it in, in your Twitter client. You know, things like that. Caching uh, is just a tricky problem to get right. And that's why I like letting the server be in control. So you can say, okay, cache this list for 30 seconds. And if that turns out to be a problem, then the server can change the parameters and say, okay, that was a bad idea. Let me change it to 10 seconds. But if you've shipped uh, a client that hard codes caching parameters, then you're in for a much more difficult debugging experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm laughing because I've, I've made that mistake in the past. Yeah. Well, me too. That's why I'm so bullish on making sure that, you know, from iOS perspective, you really don't have to do a whole lot. Uh, just, and use something like Charles to validate that you are sending those uh, conditional headers. So the headers you'd be looking for would be if modified since or if none match with an e-tag. Uh, the two can be used interchangeably. They can use, be used together, but uh, the e-tag is generally content-based uh, cache. So 
it's like a, a, a hash of the content. So if the content ends up changing, that'll generate a new e-tag. Uh, but oftentimes that means the server still has to do a database request to actually pull out a record from the database and compare the e-tag of the new record with the old one. Sometimes you could perhaps get away with just using modified date by if perhaps you had that data a little bit easier to fetch. Like maybe you wouldn't need to go fetch the entire record. Uh, you could just check a modified date somewhere. Uh, so just depends on the use. But again, servers can be deployed and changed and fixed and all while um, you know people have these mobile devices in their hands and they may not update it for two months. So I have a question for you about Charles because I've used Charles in the past, but it's usually I'm intercepting stuff from my browser to my web app since that's primarily what I wind up working on for my clients. When you're talking about doing it from like an, an iOS device, are you doing it from the... Um, emulator, or do you can you actually use Charles to intercept um, requests to your machine from your iPhone? Yes, usually I'm doing it from the simulator because I'm just trying to um, I'm in active development and trying to take a look at what the actual data coming out of the device is. But you can easily set up Charles as a proxy and then go into the network settings of your phone and say use a proxy server, type in the IP oh, address of yeah. your Mac and the port number, and it will use Charles. And honestly, you can really take a look at other apps on your phone and see what they're doing. Um, a lot of them use SSL, but not all of them reject untrusted uh, intermediate certificate authorities. Uh, so it just depends on the networking library they use and what the settings are. Uh, and then if you do if you do decide to install the, the trusted Charles certificate on your phone, then at that point, the, the app doesn't know that you're talking to Charles. It thinks it's talking to a trusted server. Yeah. So if they're not using SSL pinning, and this is one of the ways that Path got in trouble. People found out that they were sending your entire address book up to their servers. And they did it for, you know, a legitimate, well, I can't really say a legitimate, they did it for a reason. And that reason was to support a feature that they wanted to have in there. Whereas if I was on Path and we, and we, if I had your contact in my address book, when you join Path, they want to let both of us know, hey, your friend is already on Path. And so it's a, a uh, seemingly useful feature, but the, the ramifications of that meant that your entire address book gets sent up to their server with contact information for all kinds of people. And you could imagine how dangerous that could be if, if uh, these people are celebrities or political figures or, or you know, somebody's got to have Tim Cook's uh, phone number in their address book, you know, things like that. Uh, and the only way that somebody figured that out is by uh, performing a man-in-the-middle attack to in, uh, sniff the data, you know. <laughs> Interesting. So it turns out that that same feature could be implemented without without um, sort of violating anybody's privacy. Uh, and that's by hashing the content instead of just sending it in unencrypted. So instead of knowing your actual phone number, I just know the hash of your phone number. But if I also receive the hash of your phone number when you sign up for that app, then you can compare the hashes. And it's just the same as if you were comparing values. Uh, but you don't actually see the phone number. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're just about out of time. Anything else we should cover before we wrap this up? I, I don't know. I just API design is kind of a, a tough beast. And once you've consumed a few of them, you'll realize hey, that wasn't really a great idea, or this would be better implemented this way. But uh, yep. I don't know. It's just kind of a, a learning process. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Rod, what are your picks? Uh, all right. I'm going to pick, uh, for my first pick, will be uh, a new Objective-C newsletter called Objects Ob- Ob-C. It's at www.obc.io. First week they had uh, the first issue they had lighter lighter view controllers and then the second week which just came out is all about concurrent programming so there's a lot of good stuff in there. Awesome. And I, yeah, I guess that's I only had one choice. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ben, what are your picks? Uh, so I have uh, two. Uh, earlier on the pre-call, I mentioned this little device I got. Uh, it's a new uh, USB recording interface. Uh, it's called the Mackie Onyx Blackjack. And uh, so far, I'm liking it. It gives me a little more oomph for in terms of gain control, but also has two channels. So in case I ever wanted to have, uh, say, a guest uh, recording or whatever, I could do that. And so anyway, and it looks a lot cooler than my last one. So uh, that's obviously super important. 
So, uh, but basically, it just lets me plug in my XLR mic and get a USB port on the other end. So that's a recent purchase of mine. And then uh, talking about APIs, a lot of times it's it's useful to sort of monitor APIs and see if what errors are coming back. And sometimes that can be done with logs or whatever. But uh, I ran across this uh, really cool new startup that a friend of mine is part of uh, called RunScope. And what it'll do is it'll pr- serve as sort of a, a middleman for an API. So it's it's complete pass-through. So you, you basically say, okay, instead of the host for the actual API, I'm going to use this modified host that sends the data to their server, and then they send it to the, the actual API, and then they give you the response. And by doing that, you can actually view all of the content, uh, and you can copy requests and replay them later. Uh, there's just all kinds of interesting things you can do. You can graph errors. Uh, and so this looks like a really, really useful tool for... Uh, maybe in development, but I think you can also use this in production if you wanted to to see like what average response times are, what what different requests look like, that sort of thing. So that's at runscope.com. There's also an app called HTTP Client that lets you uh, interact with a uh, any web API too with with a Mac client, plug in your mm-hmm. your requests and and play with it. Yeah, what I like about this is that I don't have to I don't have to actually do anything. I just once I've changed the host name, it. It will just uh, pass all the headers and the body and everything over. Uh, and then you can replay them later. Uh, actually, that brings me to a, a good tip that I used in uh, when building Delhi Radio. You can usually inspect parameters or you have like a callback where you can send requests uh, or log the details of requests. Like I'm about to make a get request to this URL with these parameters. Uh, and so oftentimes I wanted to see what the responses looked like, but I didn't want to like clutter up the logs by putting them in you just NS logging all my responses. So in development mode, I actually log a curl statement in NS log, which uh, allows me to just copy and paste that right in the terminal and uh, see what the data is. And that was really, really invaluable uh, in determining, you know, well, the API is returning this, so we know it's, you know, we know it's an API issue or we know it's an app issue. Nice. So those are my picks. <clears throat> all right. Well, I've got a couple of picks. The first pick that I want to pick is Markdown. I guess it's not really a markup language. I guess it's kind of a markup language, but it's a really simple one. Um, one would say it's a markdown language. Yeah. <laughs> and you can uh you can uh compile it to HTML and things like that. So uh it's really handy. It's a nice way to go. And uh, I'm going to post the link to the Daring Fireball markdown explanation cuz I think it's awesome. And uh, that's really all I've got. I use Markdown to write my uh, readmes on my open source stuff. So, Which app do you use? Just a text editor? Yeah, usually. There's lots of Markdown apps. I use uh, Vim for most of that type of stuff because I'm usually in Vim anyway. But I use uh, an app called Marked. And uh, I have a Vim key binding which will open up the current file in Marked. And uh, it has different styles so you can simulate the GitHub style. So usually I'm writing a readme in Markdown, like you said. Uh, but then it'll show me what it looks like as I'm writing it, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I only use Marked when I need to like export it and make it look really nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, because you can do like a PDF exporter, HTML exporter, whatever. But yeah. I, I like, I like seeing it as I write it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. We'll catch y'all next week. Thanks for listening.